0: Alright everybody, go ahead and grab a seat and uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to Daniel chapter 6 where uh, we've come to the final narrative in the book of Daniel. Um, If you're just joining us, the the book of Daniel is made up of two parts. The first six chapters tell the story of uh, Daniel and his friends and their time living in exile in the land of Babylon. And then the the last six chapters uh, tell about visions and dreams that Daniel had while living in Babylon. So next week, we're going to get into the back half of the book. This is where we're going to see a beast coming out of the ocean, beast with like 10 horns. We're going to see timelines. You can bring your calendars and your charts. This will be the section where you get to find out that political leader you don't like is the Antichrist. Uh, it's going to be a great, great time in the back half of the book. Don't let that scare you. There's good news there. It's going to be a great time. But before we get there, uh, we have one last narrative in the book of Daniel, and it's really uh, the most famous story of Daniel's life and maybe one of the best-known stories in the whole Bible. It's the story of Daniel in the lion's den. Um, how many of you have heard this one before? Yeah, okay, almost the whole room. Yeah, if, my, if, if our girls were in here, they'd have two hands raised because this is one of their favorite stories to read in the Bible. Um, I think because it combines two things they really love. Uh, lions and Jesus. And so they're like, sign me up. The only story that they like better than this one is David and Goliath, because they get to ride on my shoulders and throw stuff at each other. Uh, This is a very, very popular story. The pages are basically falling out on our kids' Bible on this story. And uh, we read it last night, and even last night I was thinking about it. I was like, man, for as many times as I've read this, there's some things that the kids' Bible leads out. Um, For example, verse 24, you can peek ahead at that. Um, I've never seen a kid's Bible uh, really address that verse there. Uh, Additionally, I thought this was interesting. Um, How old does Daniel look in the depictions you've seen of this story? Young, young young guy, yeah. 20s, 30s, uh, he's got a full head of hair. He's got his whole life ahead of him, right? Um, But if you were here last week, you learned that Daniel is in his 80s by now and and so um for daniel uh man it's not just the lines at the bottom of the pit like he could break a hip being thrown down in there uh and so i just want to say that to like reframe the story for you and and really um i i i say that to encourage you because uh we, we live in a culture that so elevates and values youth and acts like you're, you're smartest and you're best when you're 30 or 40 years old. But what we see in the Bible is if you're a person who walks with God, your best ministry could still be ahead. Daniel's most famous story in his entire life comes in his 80s. And so your best ministry, it could still be ahead in your 50s and your 60s and your 70s and your 80s. Heck, why not your 90s? Your best ministry could still be ahead. I say this to you all the time. If you're not dead yet, you're not done yet. And that is something we see on full display in Daniel chapter 6 in the final story we get of Daniel's life. Are you ready to look at it? All right, here we go. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we read this. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was found in him. And the king planned to send him over the whole kingdom, Then the high officials and the satraps, they sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground of complaint or any fault because he was faithful. That's our word for today. He was faithful and no error was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps, they came by agreement to the king and they said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the counselors, the governors, were all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes a petition to any god or any man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so it cannot be changed according to the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. We'll start off by looking at these characters. Uh, First up, you have King Darius. Um, Now, if you weren't here last week and you're like, what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar? Um, A lot happened in Daniel chapter 5. We had a big time jump. A new king was on the throne in Babylon. He was a bad dude. He didn't repent like his predecessor. And so God brought judgment on Babylon. Babylon is dead. They are gone. And a new empire has come in. The Medo-Persian coalition led by this guy, Darius. So Darius is the new king in charge in the region. They've recently taken over from Babylon. These guys are the new superpowers power and what's going on in this chapter is this follows right on the heels of last week they've taken over and now they're setting up their brand new government um so picture like 1945 germany uh an evil power has just been defeated by the coalition armies and now they've got to figure out okay what's the new government look like we don't want to do that again and so what can we do to avoid doing that And so they come up with this idea. They say, well, man, you know, the the land was ruled by force under the Babylonians where you had the whims of a dictator ruling things, and that was very, very bad. So let's have the land be ruled by law this time, the laws of the Medes and Persians. And so they're trying to set up a new way of doing government here. And um, there are some improvements, but you're going to see in our text, not a huge improvement. In fact, this is what verse 24 is about. That women and children die because of the foolishness of their husbands and fathers. This is something that scripture explicitly says grieves the heart of God. God says in the Bible, children shouldn't die for the sins of their parents. But that's exactly what this new Medo-Persian government does. They put children to death for the sins of their parents. And so my whole point is, for all the talk of progress... um, while there might be some minor improvements from Babylon to Medo-Persia, at the end of the day, Medo-Persia is going to have flaws just like every other human empire in history will have. Um, something that We'll see more of this next week as we get into the apocalyptic section, but there's no human government that can evolve to the point of saying, we have arrived, we've fixed it. Every society has its issues, and that's what the Bible is telling us in verse 24. For all the progress of at least moving to a system of laws and governments— There are still some problems in Medo-Persia, as if it wasn't obvious from the lion's den. Um, but, But that's what's going on. They're trying to set up a new government. And as they're setting up this new government, our guy Darius picks Daniel to serve in that government. And and just like happened in Babylon, Daniel was chosen to serve in government service. And when he was, he raised through the ranks above all of his peers. And it happens again here. He distinguishes himself as as a super-duper good guy, a great leader, a gifted leader that's really helping the new place get up and running. And um, if you're wondering, like, how does this keep happening to this guy? How does he keep king after king after king getting promoted and lifted and raised up? For all the opposition, how does this happen to the guy? And I would point you to verse 3. Verse 3 tells us how it keeps happening. It says, King Darius specifically chose him because an excellent spirit was found in him. Um, That's the Holy Spirit. It's the same spirit who lives in you and me if you're a disciple of Jesus. This is the beauty of the the gospel and what Jesus has done is he has made a way for his spirit to dwell in all people who would trust in him. Just like the spirit was in Daniel and working through Daniel uh, to shine the light of God's kingdom and goodness and power and grace in Babylon. To where all of his pagan bosses kept saying, hey, we don't get Daniel's religion, but we sure could use more Daniels here the Holy Spirit in him. He is what the New Testament would call a spirit-filled person. Where he goes, the light of God's kingdom, the goodness of God, and his power and grace are shining through him, because an excellent spirit is in him. And so that's King Darius, that's Daniel, and then you have the other satraps. These are the other leaders and government officials, and um, Daniel is filled with the Holy Spirit and blessing the new nation, and and the king says, hey, Daniel, you get a promotion. I want you to be number two in the land. The other satraps, they didn't like this. Can you imagine why? I heard something over here. Jealous. That is exactly what our daughter said last night. Word for, yes. Yes they're jealous. These guys want to be in charge. They want to be the one elevated to a position of power. And so when they see Daniel get elevated, um, yeah, they don't like it. And so what they did is they created a committee to investigate Daniel, to try to dig up some dirt on him. Um, It's a good thing politics has changed so much in 2,500 years. Um, But but seriously, here's the part that will actually blow your mind. They ran a full investigation on this guy. They had all the three-letter agencies involved. They're spying, they're digging, they're looking, and at the end of the investigation, they're like, well, fellas, we got nothing. Which would make Daniel both the first and last politician to ever be someone you couldn't dig up dirt on. We got nothing on this guy. And so uh, they kind of plot and scheme and say, okay, We got nothing bad, but Daniel really loves his God. And so if we could make that bad, then we could get rid of Daniel. Um, I've got a picture for you that just perfectly sums up what's going on in the text here. Let's throw this up here. What are the three words that come to your mind when you see that picture? It's a trap! It's a trap! Perfect. You nailed it. You understand the, the deep political movements of an ancient society 25 years ago. You get the deep theology of this text. You've got some politicians who are jealous of Daniel, and so they create a trap to try to get him out of power. What's going to happen? Verse 10. Let's see. When Daniel knew the document had been signed... He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees, and three times a day he prayed and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Um, now, when I was a kid hearing this story, um, I, I would always say, like, man, Daniel might be really godly, but he's not very smart. Like all he had to do was shut the windows. It doesn't say they were waiting for him in the closet and they found him. All he had to do was shut the windows and these guys would have nothing on him. Um, And and isn't that what Jesus says to do in Matthew chapter 6? He says, hey, when you pray, go into your closet in private and secret and pray to the Lord who sees your heart and sees in private and he will reward you. And so one way you could look at this story is um, Daniel's enemies plot against him. They make faith illegal. And so Daniel goes full on Michael Scott. He says, oh, you tell me I can't pray? Well, I'm going to pray even harder. And he goes out there. No office fans in here? <laughs> and so he goes out there and he opens all the windows and makes a big show of it and says, take that, fellas. You could read the text that way, but that would be a very bad way to read the text. That would be very rude to the ancient author that composed this very intentionally, full of the Holy Spirit, to tell you what's going on. It says that he did this as he had done previously. So he's not going full Michael Scott doing something new. This was his normal, everyday pattern of prayer. He prayed with his windows open, facing Jerusalem, three times a day. For 70 years he had been in Babylon. This was a normal thing. This was never an issue before now. And so it's not so much that Daniel prayed, it's how Daniel prayed that got him in trouble. And so the question you should be asking then is, well, why did he pray with his windows open facing Jerusalem? Um, Especially if Jesus says, hey, the prayer in your prayer closet, that one will count. Like, why not just go for that? And I'm so glad when you asked that because that's what I wanted to talk about uh, for a little bit here. Um, If you flip back a couple of books in the Bible to 1 Kings chapter 8... Uh, You will read there um, a prayer. This is several hundred years earlier. at the dedication of the temple, and God's people are worshiping. They're celebrating what God's doing in Israel, and they're just praying blessings on the place. They're saying, God, would you be present with us? Would you bless us? Make us a blessing to the nations? Would you make this temple a place where the whole world can come and see what you're like? It's a great day of celebration. And then in the middle of all that celebration, King Solomon prays for something kind of weird. He, he, In all the midst of all this celebration, he prays this in verse 46. He says, If they, speaking of future generations, sin against you, and and who has never sinned, well, then God, you might become angry with them and let their enemies conquer them and take them captive to their land far away or near." But in that land of exile, they might turn to you in repentance and pray, saying, we have sinned and done evil and acted wickedly. So if they turn to you, you know, hypothetically speaking, if if future generations don't worship you like this, if they rebel against you and act foolishly and get carried away into exile... Hypothetically speaking, if that's going to happen, and if they turn to you and pray, verse 48, if they pray to you with their whole heart and soul in the land of their enemies and pray towards the land you gave their ancestors, towards this city you have chosen, and towards the temple I have built to honor your name, then hear their prayers and their petition from heaven where you live and uphold their cause. Forgive your people who have sinned against you, forgive all the offenses. They've committed against you. Make their captors merciful to them. This is written hundreds of years before Daniel. Daniel would have grown up reading this in his Bible. I, I, I just imagine that, like maybe he's reading this in his Bible going, "Oh my goodness, they're talking about us. This is us. We rebelled against God. We got sent into exile, and so God's inviting us to pray and to repent, and He'll bring us back. And and so this is why I think he's praying with his windows open facing Jerusalem. It's because he says, yeah, we did do it, but that's not the end of the story according to God. If we would seek him with our whole hearts, if we would cry out in repentance, he would be merciful and come rescue us from this wicked and awful place. And so for 70 years, Daniel prayed this way. Three times a day, he would face the temple and he would say, God, you said... And so I'm just asking you to do what you said in your word. I'm doing what you've called me to do. Here's the point. Um, This whole chapter is really about a temptation towards omission, not commission. Um, If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is a really helpful paradigm you'll want to have. You might want to write those words down. Omission and commission. You might find better words. These rhyme. Preachers like stuff like that. But omission and commission. Here's what's going on. Um, what we see in the Bible is there's really two ways to miss out on the fullness of life that God has for you. Uh, The first way is through what's called sins of commission. This is where you actively do something God told you not to do. And so, um, like God says, do not lie. And, And then you leave here, and you get pulled over by a police officer, and the police officer says, do you know how fast you are going? And you go, huh, I really don't know, officer. Which, has that ever gotten anyone out of a speeding ticket to plead it? I've never had a cop go, well, since you didn't know, I mean, you're going 15 over. But if you didn't know, buddy, and you look truthful, you're off. Um, sins of commission would be like when God says to Israel, don't worship any other gods. And then they put up temple prostitutes in God's holy temple. That's a sin of commission. He's like, I literally told you not to do that. Why are you doing that right now? You're hurting you. You're hurting everybody. You're grieving me. These are sins of commission. And this is what I think we tend to think of when we think of sin. God said not to do it, and we do it anyway. Um, But life gets really interesting when you develop a category for sins of omission. Um, This is where you fail to do the things that God has said to do. Um, And if we're just having some real talk, this is the one where I really feel the tension. um, Where, for for example, God will say, um, hey take a Sabbath each week, take a day off, rest, have a great time, take a nap, enjoy yourself, you're a human being, not a human doing. And my response is, I'll do it when I'm retired. When I'm Daniel's age, I'll take a day off, I'll take a nap. There's too much to be done. So so God's invited me to something, and I don't do it. Now, now I could look at that and say, well, at least I'm not out there, you know, bowing down to the golden statues like you told me not to. But I'm still missing out on the life God has for me because I'm not doing the thing that he invited me into. Are you tracking with me? See, if all you think about is avoiding the bad stuff, in your life, the stuff God doesn't want you to do, and you never think about the good things that God has graciously invited you into, your vision of the Christian life is going to be anemic at best. Um, if, if, because the Christian life is prim, it's not primarily about what you shouldn't do. The the Christian life, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, it's a life of power. It's a life of flourishing. It's a higher plane of existence in relationship with God that blesses the world. And so the Christian life, it's not primarily about what not to do. There's plenty of things that we do that are self-destructive and God wants to rescue us from. The Christian life is primarily about a life that God invites you into, a life of beauty and power and mean where we're going to see this in a few chapters. The prayers that Daniel pray facing Jerusalem are what brings God to move the heart of the king, to release the people of uh, the nation they're in, to send them back to the land of Jerusalem. Daniel gets to pray the will of God into action. And we'll look at this in a couple of weeks. It's literally in the Bible. He prayed it, and God's like, okay, Daniel, because you've asked me, I'm about to do an end to the exile, send you guys home. I'm going to be gracious and merciful. Thanks for asking. I love to answer your prayers. Daniel got to participate in that. And for 2,500 years, we look at Daniel and go, what a legacy, what a great life that this man lived. It's crazy he got to participate in all of that. But it never would have happened if the day that edict was signed, he shut the windows down and said, well, I'm I'm not going to go bow down to the golden statue over there. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they already taught us not to do that. But maybe I'll just kind of privatize my faith and and not be so public about it. Maybe I'll just be more internal and kind of separate out. Maybe I won't be wholehearted in my devotion to Jesus. I'll just give him Sunday mornings. If Daniel had done that, he wouldn't have known Thing about the life that God invited him into. And I just, I wonder how many of us that describes today. That we're... Our vision of the Christian life is all the stuff we shouldn't be doing. We're not even thinking about the exciting things that God has called us into. We know nothing of the joys of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We know nothing about the joys of following Jesus on his mission and seeing lives and legacies transformed. And I'll tell you this, it's why you're bored. Because the Christian life isn't primarily this. It's an invitation into something. And so if you walk in here this morning and you're like, yeah, if I'm honest, I I am bored. um, I just want you to look right at me. He has more for you than that. He's got more for you than that. The Christian life isn't just what not to do. It's an invitation into a higher plane of existence. And he has more for you than you know if you would just take him up on the invitation this morning. Uh, that, that's the good news. Um, the bad news is when you live in a place like Babylon, um, or Babylon Jr., like we're looking at in the, our text here, uh, where faith in God isn't popular, well, then there will come times where you have to choose between your faith and your fame. So for as exciting as we just said the Christian life is, if you're living in a very non-Christian culture, there will come times where you have to choose between do I want to live that exciting life or do I want to have fame and be highly regarded by the culture around me? Where people at your work will um, be talking and, and they'll just start laughing and mocking the idea that there's churches and people that actually still believe that their religion is the right one. Like, man, haven't we evolved past such thinking like that what do you do in those moments when they start laughing about that do you say actually since you brought it up or do you just say quiet do you choose your fame over your faith in the adventure of what god has called you to and what he has called you to be in that place or what about when it's your kids and your kids say man i could never believe in a god who wouldn't approve of my lifestyle Mom, dad, you don't actually believe that stuff, do you? You don't still believe that God would think that. You don't believe that stuff. Come on, do you? What do you say in those moments? How do you remain faithful to God when the stakes are that high? How do you remain faithful? To, to not just not participate in bowing to the idols, but how do you remain faithful to continue actively stepping into the life of adventure and purpose God has for you when the stakes are this high at home, in your neighborhood, and in your workplace? That's what this story is here to tell us about. And I would submit to you there's two things we've got to see in this story if we have any shot of doing it. Um, habits and heroes. Um, so, so let's talk first about habits. Habits. Uh, We just learned that for 70 years, Daniel has had a habit of praying three times a day, um, bowing down on his knees, facing Jerusalem with his windows open. So so I want you to just think about this. I want you to wrap your mind around this. Um, Every morning, he woke up and he made his cup of coffee. And he got his coffee and he got down there on the ground and he found that favorite corner of his living room where he's like, okay, is that... Okay, God, Jerusalem. Okay, and he gets down there with his coffee, and he gets on his knees, the text tells us, which is a posture of humility. There's nothing magical about kneeling in prayer, except for the fact that we are integrated beings, and our bodies and our spirit, it's all connected. And so there's sometimes something helpful, though it's not required, about physically putting yourself in a position to say, God, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm admitting I'm not God, and I'm going to pray to you. Daniel had a habit of three times a day, first thing in the morning, maybe before he made his coffee. I don't know if he was that godly. He got down and he prayed for 70 years, three times a day, morning, afternoon, and evening. Now, um, I'm sure there were some mornings where Shadrach needed a ride to the airport like super early and it kind of jammed up his flow. I, I mean, I'm just using my, that's on the text, by the way. I'm just using my holy imagination that Meshach was like, hey, I need a ride to the camel station. Could you get me over there? And, and so surely, the, I, I imagine there were mornings he didn't. But the point is that for 70 years, he, he, this is the habit he kept coming back to, that he would start his day. That he would start his day, that he would interrupt his day, that he would end his day on his knees in prayer, facing Jerusalem, saying, God, you said, you said, you said, I believe, I believe, I believe. Thank you for all I've seen you do in this place. Now, would you come in power and move even more from this place? This is the habit he kept coming back to. And I think you probably know this, but once something becomes a habit in your life, it becomes the most natural thing in the world, right? Like, I've watched Karen in the last few years become a morning person, which has been a stunning transfer. If you asked me, like, five years ago, could Karen ever be a morning person? I'm like, I mean, Jesus is alive after being dead, so anything could happen, but probably not. And now she just, like, rolls awake at, like, 4 a.m. I'm like, what are you doing? I don't know. Body's just awake. Because once you have something that has a happen, it just becomes the most natural thing in the world. To where you instinctively begin to do it without even thinking about it. And here, here's what I'd submit to you. This is why Daniel is able to stand when the pressure was on. Because he spent 70 years developing the instinct. Saying that this is where life is found. This is where hope is found. This is where healing is found. And so these plotters, these schemers get together this plan and say, you can't do that anymore. And he's like, I could try to not do that, but this is my habit. This is the most natural thing in the world to this man. And I would submit to you, the same is true of you and me. You want to know what you would be like if you were in Daniel's shoes? You want to know what would happen if you showed up at work on Monday and they're like, you can't believe the stuff you believe anymore? We need you to wear this pin, we need you to rep this, we need you to, you want to know what would happen? I could tell you what would happen simply by you telling me about the last week of your life, simply by you telling me about what you're already doing in your life. Because I will tell you this, you will not do on that day what you're not already doing every day. This is how habits work. The things we do in small everyday moments train us for our responses to big life-changing moments. Um, Listen to how one pastor put it talking about this text. I thought this was so on point. I was like, I, I need to share this with you. This is so good. He says, courage in the lion's den comes from consistency in the prayer closet. This guy's a Baptist, by the way. That was awesome. Courage and consistency. Courage in the lion's den comes from consistency in the prayer closet. Daniel didn't summon up courage the moment he was thrown in the lion's den. His courage was the result of years and years of small, faithful acts of obedience, patterns he had laid down. The best indicator of what you would do on that day is what you're regularly and habitually doing today. And, and so if you find yourself in a position where you, you feel like, man, I keep failing when moments like this come in my life. I keep Maybe not, I'm not doing sins of commission. I'm not joining anyone and actively doing anything wrong. But I keep being silent about God. I keep cowering in fear. If you find yourself continually, like, like, continuing to fail in these regards, what I would say to you is, hey, maybe it's time to form some new habits in your life. Because I don't think it's an accident that the Holy Spirit put it in the text that he prayed this way as he had Previously been. It was his habits that trained Daniel to see this as the most natural thing to do on this day. Um, Have you ever heard the idea that it takes 21 days to form a new habit? Anyone hear hear that? Okay, I looked it up this week. It's based on bad science. Um, That very very famous book was written by a plastic surgeon. So some of you are like, really? Yeah, look it up. I was like, are you kidding me? This is like so widely accepted. It's written by a plastic surgeon talking about physical changes in his clients. So, so maybe for a physical change, 21 days, that's your number. I don't have any plastic surgery on the books coming up. Um, and I would tell you from my experience that while we are integrated, connected beings in the body and the spirit, it's all one Um, I would say that emotional and spiritual changes are a little bit more complex than changes to the body. And so it takes a little bit longer than 21 days to form a new habit. Um, I I looked it up for you because I love you and I was also interested. Uh, The best research says it takes around 66 days to form a new habit. Uh, Depending on the the level of seriousness or intensity of that habit, it could take a little longer. It could be a little shorter, um, but around 66 days. And so I just want to pose the question, like, if you feel like, man, I keep failing on sins of omission. I keep shrinking back. I keep not stepping into what he has for me. Maybe, what what if for the next 66 days, you said, I'm going to try, I'm I'm not going to be creative. I'm just going to do what's in the text. I'm going to try three times a day praying. I'm going to try three times a day to set out time in my day to humble myself before God, to thank him, as the text said Daniel did, for all he is and who he is, and then I'm going to make some petitions and pleads before him three times a day. What if you did that for 66 days and just watch to see what kind of change that habit would have on your life? Um, I'll tell you this. Um, I haven't been working on this sermon for 66 days, but I have been for six days. And um, as we were doing the Adopt-A-Week for Love Life this past week, I was like, well, hey, I'll I'll block out some time. Uh, I'm usually a little more spontaneous with my prayer, which is sometimes an excuse for being um, lazy and omitting the opportunities to pray. Um, some of you that you're spontaneous, you feel attacked. Don't worry, I'm spontaneous as well. But I, I set out these time to intentionally pray this week. And I'll just tell you this. Um, I found myself so much more alive to Jesus by simply in the middle of the afternoon just pausing what I was doing and being like, I'm going to go pray right now. Now, I work in a church. I have a great honor. You're like, my boss would fire me for doing that. Well, you know what? You have the Holy Spirit and you're super creative. And I bet you could come up with a way to try it as well. All I'm saying is, man, I... It's not been enough to form a new habit, but my experience this past week is there is something to the rhythm of breaking up your day and getting with Jesus that infuses every moment of the day with his presence. I'm not saying Jesus is more there. I'm saying my eyes were more open to it. There's something to the habit that Daniel has here. And so I would just commend it to you. I don't know. What if we tried it together? 66 days. What might this place look like? Selah. That's only the first point. Um, So so Daniel had this habit of praying three times a day. It's something worth reflecting on. But this text isn't only about habits. And so, so let's keep reading to see the other thing I said we'd talk about. Verse 10, or excuse me, verse 11. Then these men came by agreement, and they found Daniel making petitions and pleas before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or any man 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? These guys can't contain themselves. They are giddy with joy. They found Daniel praying. They're like, we knew it. That guy's so predictable. And so they go before the king and, you know, they fake all the pleasantries. Like, king, we're just so concerned about you. We're just so concerned about Medo-Persia. And you know that really important law that we signed? Well, Daniel's breaking the law. These guys can't contain themselves. They're so happy. Then the king answered and said, Well, I mean, yeah, if that's in the law, the thing stands fast. According to the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. This guy would make a great Christian. He's like, the law has been in place for five seconds. That's how we've always done it. It's true according to the Medes and Persians. We cannot revoke it. Verse 13, then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles of Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed, and he set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king... Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. I just want to stop right there and say, this is where I say maybe Medo-Persia is a little better than Babylon. Because if you remember in chapter 3, when Nebuchadnezzar found out that there was someone who, quote, pays no attention to you, he was filled with rage and wanted to kill those guys. Darius, when he hears this, he's like, oh no, shoot. Shoot. I just let poor Daniel be trapped. So I think he's a mild improvement over Nebuchadnezzar, but at the same time, he is no more able to deliver Daniel. So, for all of his good intentions, he can do nothing to help Daniel. Daniel's enemies say, Remember, it's the laws of the Medes and Persians, it's official now. This is how the new government's gonna work. You're bound by what you said. Basically, Darius is a fool, and he got tricked by bad counsel into making a bad decision. And now Daniel's going to pay the price. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve, continually deliver you. To which I imagine Daniel was like, thanks. Verse 17. And a stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Um, Now, now we know how the story is going to end. Before we read that, I just want to pause and ask you to enter in this moment. Daniel was faithful to God, and he was thrown into a dark pit full of lions, anyway. Um, Maybe some of you have been there before, where you feel just cast into utter darkness, not because of your sin, but because of the sins and foolishness of others around you. And if you've ever been in that place, here's what I want you to notice. Daniel is not in the dark because God has abandoned him. Daniel is in the dark because God knows in the darkness, that is where his light shines the brightest. And that is where Daniel wants to be. Verse 19. Then, at the break of day, The king arose, and he went in haste to the den of lions, and he came near to the den where Daniel was, and he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they and their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones into pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the people's nations and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear. Fear the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever, and his kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, and he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian, who would be the next leader, who would be the leader that would eventually send them home. In other words, it ended happily ever after for our boy Daniel. And I want you to notice that final statement that he made it to the end, that he saw the end of exile, it does not come until after he is thrown in the lion's den. It's not until after he is thrown in the pit that the light of God's kingdom shines bright enough for this new king Nebuchadnezzar, or excuse me, this new king Darius to realize what Nebuchadnezzar had saw before him. Did his statement at the end sound familiar at all? He's saying what Nebuchadnezzar realized at the end of his life. He's saying what every king, what every human, what every knee will one day bow and confess. That God is the king of all the earth. He is the creator and as creator there's not a square inch over this cosmos that he cannot rightly point to and say that is mine that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he is the only one with ultimate power to save. There might be junior kings and junior lords, but our power is limited, but his power is unlimited. He is in the heavens, and he can save whoever he wants, even if you throw him to a den of lions that would otherwise tear people to pieces. And so he says, "And if you trust this God that it doesn't matter who your enemies are. It doesn't matter how politically powerful your enemies are. If you're in his hands, there ain't no one that can touch you. That is the light that shines from Daniel's life here in the end. And that's really the big idea of the book of Daniel. Um, And and this is where we've got to talk about this idea of heroes. Um, See, one of the mistakes people make with this story is um, they can tend to turn it into a hero tale. Um, where the way I was taught it growing up is uh, dare to be a Daniel. And, And I've tried to show you throughout this series that there's tons that we can learn from the life of Daniel. Like his whole habit of praying three times a day, I'm like, I think we'd all be happier, more whole, more alive humans if we would adopt that into our lives. There's tons that we can learn from Daniel, but that is not the main point of the story or any story in the Bible. The main point of this story is the faithfulness of God to his people that when you're carried away in exile due to your sins and your rebellion God's not going to abandon you in that place he's not going to say I'm finished I'm done with you I can't believe you did it again when you are carried away in exile if you would turn to him and with your whole heart say I'm sorry would you save me would you be gracious would you be merciful would you be kind he'll be faithful to be kind He'll hear your prayer from heaven. He'll act in history to redeem you from the exile you're in. And so when others come and attack you, like Daniel is maliciously attacked by his enemies, God won't let them harm you. It might look like they're harming you for a minute. You might get thrown into a den of lions. You might lose your job. You might lose a relationship. Someone you love might say, I hate you because of the God you worship. It might look like you lost in the short term, but what your enemy intends for evil, God always intends for good. What Daniel's enemies intended for evil, God said, throw him in the lion's den so I can make sure Darius knows who I am and can tell all the empires of the world that it wasn't just Babylon that thinks I'm great, but it's every nation that will one day sing of my greatness. Because this is who our God is. He's a God who rescues from the darkness. And it's, It's only when you see that, that he's the real hero of the Daniel story, that he's the one that rescues. And Daniel only had faith to go in the lion's den because he had years of experience of God being gracious and kind. And so he knew if I could trust you over here, I could trust you there. And it is only when you see how gracious and faithful and kind God is to you that you will be filled with the kind of faith like Daniel that says, I'm not going to stop praying. Throw me in the lion's den if you have to. I will either be delivered by being devoured and show up in heaven and be like, this is awesome, I'm a young man again. Or I'll be delivered in the lion's den and lifted out and everyone will sing God's praises. Win-win, so you guys choose, but I'm not going to stop praying. The only way you can respond that way is if you get beyond Daniel to seeing the God of Daniel that inspired that kind of faith in him. And so I I just want to end this narrative section by saying this. For all the good we can learn from Daniel, that cannot be your main takeaway from this book. If all you try to do is follow Daniel's example, you will end up frustrated and discouraged. Because habits help. They get you going in the right direction. There's a lot of wisdom from this. But I won't speak for you. I'll just speak for me. Um, My habits always fail eventually. Can any of you relate with that? That For all of my good intentions, I'll have days where I start my day in prayer, then I get on the road, and then some crazy cuts me off because they didn't plan enough time for their commute, and I'm just doing great. And I'm like, God, you said to pray for my enemies. Bless that person. They clearly need you right now, Jesus. I'll have days where I'm like that, but then I'll also have days where I'm that crazy, cutting people off, because I think I'm the center of the universe. And so if your only takeaway from this book is the good examples you can learn, here's what I can promise you from experience. You will eventually be discouraged because no one can do this perfectly. No one is blameless forever. You can hang on to that for a time, especially if your habits are good, but it won't last forever. And in the moment that you fail you're going to be even more filled with despair because you knew the right tips and tricks to get there. And really, it's only when you see that Daniel's story, like all the stories in the Old Testament, is here to point you to Jesus, the true hero of the story, that this story will take on a new meaning and power in your life. And so I just want to end by one more time showing you Jesus and this story, showing you the incredible parallels between Daniel and Jesus. Um, Daniel is depicted as a picture of innocence. He's called blameless. On the lips of his enemies, he's called blameless. Jesus is the only true blameless one who not just didn't sin on that day, but never sinned in his entire life. And just like Daniel had jealous political leaders who didn't like him and plotted and schemed to unjustly take him out, so Jesus had jealous political leaders who did not like him, who schemed and plotted to change things and to lie to try to take him out. And just like Daniel prayed when he knew what they were doing, Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed as was his habit. And just as uh, Daniel is sentenced to death by an executioner, by the way, who says, you're innocent, but I can't help you, so Jesus Christ is sent to the cross by a guy who says, you're innocent, but I can't help you. You gotta go. The only difference between these two men is that while Daniel is delivered from the jaws of the lion, Jesus surrenders himself to it. And on the cross, Jesus is overcome by the weight of our sin. Psalm 22 is a psalm he quotes on the cross. If you've ever heard, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've ever wondered, why did Jesus say that? He's quoting Psalm 22. Let me just read this to you to show you how this is one big story about Jesus. Psalm 22 says this, many bulls encompass me strong bulls of bastions surround me they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion there's a lot to unpack there I don't have time for this bastion was a region that they believed that the demons dwelled and psalm 22 is this psalm about this person that would suffer on behalf of God's people and through his suffering unjustly and through demonic forces surrounding him like clients, that God would somehow work a victory that would bring the nations back to him. This is why Jesus surrendered his life on the cross. On the cross, he takes on the weight of our sin. He lets the demonic evil forces behind Babylon and every other human empire in history surround him and clench their jaws on him so that from the inside he could punch a hole out the other side and say, they have no power over you, neither does your sin, and if Satan has no claim on you and your sin has no claim on you, then who's going to condemn you anymore? And just like our boy Daniel, Jesus Christ would walk out of his grave alive again someday. This is what Jesus has done for us because he loves us. Because he's never going to let us be harmed. Because he's greater than any of the forces that could come to get against us. And So how will you be faithful to him? It's when you realize how faithful he has been to you. That's what moves us and keeps us going. It's when we fail, the thing that moves us to get up and keep going is to realize my sin has been paid for. Satan can roar like a roaring lion on this earth, but he can't condemn me and he has no power over me because my death-defeating king has defeated that lion. And so there's nothing that can harm me, not even my own sin. That's what enables us to keep going. And that is the only way you will remain faithful to the end is the more and more you see what Jesus has done to free you from the pit of lions, so that you can live a life of freedom and flourishing in his kingdom. That is what keeps us moving. And so as we respond to this message, I just want to invite you as um, Pastor Phil sings this next song, to if you've trusted in Jesus, to come forward to the table and to take the bread and the cup and remember what Christ has done to rescue us from the jaws of death. And then we can respond by singing and giving our offerings and tithes to to say together and to remind one another what really matters, who really matters. Before we walk out of here and go into a very confused world, this is what Sundays are about. Hearing the word of God, remembering the love of Jesus, and celebrating together what really matters. And so we want to invite you to take some time to do that before you rush out of here. He loves you. He's stronger than the lines in your life. And he has come out of the pit to bring you out too. Let's come to him now in response to that truth.